The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. This is Marcia Wilson, and I'll be reading the scripture today uh, from Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Well, thank you, Marcia. Just another reminder, a reader from home, uh, to, to, to remind us that we're gathered here in person. We're also gathered all around the city and in other places, bound together by the Holy Spirit, by Scripture, uh, by Jesus, under whom we are united together, uh, even in the middle of this, this uh, strange pandemic that we all hope and pray uh, will be behind us. God willing, sometime later this year, but uh, great to be with you uh, in person, great to be with you uh, virtually, those of, us who are, those of you who are joining us in that way. Uh, we're continuing in our series called Jesus, uh, studies in Mark's gospel, and uh, if you've been around long enough, you're, you're probably familiar with that part of my story that I talk about occasionally, uh, where I have had bouts with anxiety, with fear, uh, with worry uh, in my life. It's been a bit of a, a recurring occasional theme sometimes, actually most of the time, more low grade uh, and uh, a couple of times in my adult life uh, immobilizing for a season, uh, particularly with anxiety. And uh, if there's one key takeaway that I could share uh, around the subject of anxiety and fear and worry, uh, it's a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon where he said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. Now, I, I appreciate his word there usually because room has to be made for people who struggle with anxiety and fear uh, because of things like trauma in their lives or chemical imbalances or uh, predispositions uh, to to anxiety that are a product of, of living in a fallen world. We all have our unique struggles and our unique besetting challenges. But for me, whenever there's been anxiety or worry or fear, it's always been attached to some kind of hypothetical uh, circumstance, some kind of fear that the sky is going to fall uh, on my head. Uh, meditating, and this is really what my form of anxiety has been, is really a commitment uh, an emotional commitment to meditate on hypothetical worst-case scenarios. And, and to Spurgeon's quote, uh, whenever I forget who Jesus is, 
that's when my anxiety goes up. And whenever I remember who Jesus is, that's when things are calmed uh, on the inside, even, even if things are unstable uh, in the circumstances. And so what we've got here is some disciples that are facing some very unstable, uh, even life-threatening circumstances. They're in a boat. They're feeling very vulnerable. Uh, they emotionally vomit on Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care? But I want us to understand that beneath that protest, beneath that question, beneath that statement, is the recognition on the disciples' behalf that he can do something about it, that he is that strong, that he is that great, that it, he is who he says he is. When, when Jesus says, where is your faith? He's not asking them, don't you believe I have the power to calm a storm? He's asking them, don't you believe that in a storm, I do care. I do love you. So they've got a physical threat, a storm at sea, and it's a violent storm that leads to emotional vomiting all over Jesus, uh, which shows that they're a mixed bag. They believe that he's all powerful, but they're still questioning, is he all good and all loving? The storm is a major theme throughout the scripture. It goes all the way back to creation, where we see the spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters. And then he makes order and beauty out of chaos by saying, you know, let there be, and there was. In the Psalms, we read about the raging sea, which is a threat to, uh, to human existence and, and creates vulnerability for us. And in Revelation, uh, 21st chapter of Revelation, very end of the Bible, there's actually a promise where uh, the Apostle John writes, in the new heaven and the new earth, after Jesus returns, makes all things complete, all things new, all things whole, there will be no more sea. And I don't think he's speaking literally there. It, it's hard to imagine heaven without 30A, right? And, 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 and so let's just assume... I assume that he's speaking metaphorically because all throughout the Bible, the sea is presented as a metaphor, metaphor for, for turmoil, for vulnerability, for, for danger, for an uncontrollable uh, nature dynamic that we cannot get our thumbs on top of. So the sea isn't just a statement about bad weather. It's a picture of vulnerability, instability, insecurity of human existence. And so what Jesus is after here with his disciples and also with us is, is to help them and to help us live into what the 23rd Psalm says when David prays, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Fear God? I'll never have to be afraid of anything. So let's talk about the fear of dying, the fear of living, and the fear of God that ends all fears. Uh, first, the fear of dying. So this is their protest. Verse 38, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And then Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Now, before we get to the critique, uh, you know, the rhetorical question, the critique behind Jesus' rhetorical question, you're so afraid because you don't believe me. You don't believe fully that I am who I say I am. It's a question that has an answer tied to it. But, but, but before we get to that, let's talk about the good 
in hating death. The good in resisting death. So, I don't know, a dozen, 15, 20 years ago, I'm not really good with dates, but I, I remember being in a conversation with a friend of mine named John, and he had just lost his mother. His mother had died. He's a Christian man. And, you know, just trying to fill the space of the awkward silence after he shared about his mother, I said, man, I am so sorry to hear that. I, I guess that's just part of life we have to deal with. And, and, and he said, no, it's not. Death is not part of life. Death is not the way that things are supposed to be. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's so right. You know, as the poet Dylan Thomas said, we must rage against the dying of the light. Rage against it. If, if you're distressed about the thought of death, it's not because there is something wrong with your faith, it's because there's something right with your faith. It's not, it's not an indicator that your, your faith is weak. It's an indicator that your, your faith is, is right down the middle of the plate strong. We are supposed to rage at death. Jesus raged at death when he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus. He, he got angry, he got furious at death, and, and he wept. At Gethsemane, when, when Jesus is about to face his own death, we, we see him begging the Father, you know, please let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But, but it, it says that Jesus is so distressed that he's, he's sweating blood. That's how bad it is for him. And on the cross, of course, he, he's crying out to, to his father in a similar way that the disciples here are crying out to him. Why have you forsaken me? Do you not care that I'm perishing? It feels like. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul calls death the last enemy. The same guy who said to die is gain is, is also the guy who said death is an enemy. Rage against the dying of the light. I love that scene in Shadowlands where the, the C.S. Lewis character re responds to the sentimental platitudes of his friend who says, you know, after his wife dies, at, le at least you still have your faith, Jack. And he says, no, this is just a bloody awful mess and that's all there is to it. Rage. Death is an evil. It's also an unavoidable reality. There's such irony when they say we are perishing. Jesus might ask them, why weren't you saying this three days ago when you weren't stuck in a storm and sea? Because three days ago you were perishing too. This is a statement about every human being. We are perishing. Unhealthy and healthy men and women, unhealthy and healthy children are perishing. Right now we are perishing. To, to some that's a daily conscious reality because of conditions like starvation, disease, persecution, terminal illness, aging. You know, it's just, it's just pronounced for certain people that, that I have an expiration date or, or the person I love has an expiration date or my community has an expiration date. And then for others like the disciples, we're young, we're strong, we're, we're, we're vocationally employed and unprepared to face death because we just don't think about it that often. With youth sometimes comes denial. With age sometimes comes denial. 
A couple years ago, you may remember me standing up here really irritated because I got my first invitation after I turned 50 to join AARP. What is AARP? It's like triple A for old people. And it's got a lot of benefits for a really low, low price, and so of course I said, absolutely not. I don't want your membership. I don't want a card-carrying, I'm a card-carrying old guy, even though you're offering me a free sporty tote if I join. No, I don't want to face it. I don't want to deal with it. But here, here's the reality for all of us. If you're, if you're two years old or if you're 92 years old, the breath you just took is one more breath toward your last. And let's, let's just fast forward 2021. Let's just say the plans to get everybody you know, who's willing to get a vaccine vaccinated. Let's just say that herd immunity is going to happen by September. Let's just say life is back to, you know, being together fully again. And, and let's just imagine for the, for the sake of imagining that this sanctuary is as full as it was again before COVID. I think it will be. But let's imagine this way. Let's imagine that everybody who is part of Christ's Pres commits for the rest of their lives to be here every single Sunday. And let's also imagine that nobody ever after that joins Christ's Pres. The first would be great, the second would be horrible, but let's just imagine that hypothetically. Imagine the full sanctuary, everybody's here. Then imagine the sanctuary 10 years from now. Then imagine the sanctuary 50 years from now. Then imagine it 100 years from now. Complete silence, complete destitution, complete absence, complete vacancy, complete death. That would be the reality. Ecclesiastes, a healthy, rich man who's very in tune with these realities, speaks to young people. He says, remember your creator in the days that you're young. Don't wait until you're old to start thinking about these ultimate things. Remember your creator in the days that you are young. Wear your Bible out before you turn 16, if you're smart. And keep, it, keep wearing Bibles out for the rest of your life because the bigger Jesus is, the, the smaller your restlessness, restlessness is gonna be. You know, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher said, I, I preach as a dying man to dying men. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching as a dying man to dying men and dying women and dying children. That is the harsh reality of what I'm doing right now. We are perishing. And we don't need to be caught in a storm at sea to be awakened to that. We are perishing. Mortality rate, one person for every one person. The time to get your affairs in order is always now. So why the rebuke? Why wouldn't Jesus just put his arms around them and say, it's going to be okay, you guys? He's not rebuking them because they hate death. He affir everything about Jesus' life, everything about the reason why Jesus came affirms their hatred of death. What he is rebuking is that they have no redemptive imagination for how suffering and the goodness of God and the love of God and the caring, kind condescension of Jesus could all go together. 
in one package. You know, our understand, our view, what we really think about God, it's not going to come out on the mountain peaks or when we're, you know, sitting barefooted on 30A. That's not when what we really think about God is going to come out. What, what we really think about God is going to come out when, when the storms come. It's like a, it's like a tea bag, a dry tea bag. You don't really know ex- for sure what's in that tea bag until you put it in hot water, and then what's in it seeps out of it, and then you know it, it's bitter, or you know it's sweet. It's the hot water that reveals what's always been there. Suffering doesn't create misery. Suffering reveals a misery that was already there. A lack of redemptive imagination for the goodness of God in a tragic world. You know, take a look at Job and Job's wife and and, you know how they both went through the exact same set of circumstances and how they, they responded very, very differently to the same exact storm and the same exact hot water. You know, this question, don't you care? You know, Jesus is answer is, have you still no faith? I know that you have faith that I can fix this. Otherwise, you wouldn't be screaming at me. You'd be screaming at each other or screaming to the sky. You're screaming at me because you know I can fix this. So when he says, have you still no faith? Again, to complete the sentence, have you still no faith that I care? That I love you more than you love yourself? You still have no faith in that? Don't you care that we are perishing? There's such irony there because the whole reason why Jesus came is because we are perishing. He came to perish so that we would not have to perish but have everlasting life. Do you still have no faith? So so maybe he's referring to the things that they've just recently witnessed in in Mark's account. That that, that Jesus has, has defeated Satan. Jesus has defeated demons. Jesus has healed uh, an incurable skin disease called leprosy just by saying be healed. He has told a lifelong paralytic to rise, to stand and, and pick up his mat and walk with his words. And he's saying, you still have no faith. If I will come through for a paralytic, don't you think I'll come through for you in bad weather? There's the fear of dying. There's also the fear of living. They're in a boat, wind and waves everywhere. The description is a lot like the description you would imagine of a hurricane. It's uncontrollable. And Jesus is fast asleep and they say, don't you care we're perishing? They don't say, don't you care that we might perish? They say, don't you care that we are perishing? These are, remember, these are professional fishermen who, who, who know how to survive on, 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 you know, shaky waters. They know, professionally, they know how to survive when there's a storm at sea. But, but, but this is a different kind of storm. They're not saying we might perish. They're saying we are going to die. We who have had mastery over the rough waters. We who thought that we had control over the climate, realize we never did. You know, they're admitting here, we've got no amount, there's no amount of expertise, there's no amount of experience 
that, that, that could enable us on our own to, to conquer this. And, you know, just that phrase, climate control, it's a phrase we use a lot. I, I think we ought to reconsider our, voc our vocabulary there. Maybe climate stewardship, climate care. Of course we take care of the environment. Of course we're good stewards of it just like we are of our own bodies because, you know, it's just right there in our church's mission which comes straight from the Bible. We, we follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. Why are those last two words in our vision? Because in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said it's very good. He took pleasure in what he'd made. And so... In the same way we don't want to insult an artist by taking a, a Sharpie pen to their painting, we don't want to do the same to God's creation. And yet we are completely out of control as to whether or not that painting will or will not decompose. It's entirely in God's hands. And, and here's the reality. If we never burned another ounce of fossil fuel as a human race again, the world is still running down. Ask a physicist about the second law of thermodynamics. The sun is burning out. It's losing energy like the fire in your fireplace. Eventually the logs of the sun are going to be reduced to ashes and everything's going to go into chaos in our solar system. And there's nothing we can do to control it. We can push back against it, but there is no such thing as climate control climate stewardship, climate care, to do our part to slow the progress, but we cannot stop the Titanic from sinking. Only he can do that. And so it's no wonder that Jim Morrison, the front man for the Doors, who died like so many successful musicians did in his 20s, said it's strange that people fear death. Life hurts a lot more than death. Maybe the disciples and our greatest fear is not being dead. I'm not afraid of being dead. I, I'm just afraid of the things I'll have to go through between now and then. Pain doesn't discriminate. Like we say often, every person you meet is fighting a hard battle. And some of those battles are very open and explicit. And some of those battles are hidden. But every person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. And my wife and I were um, at an event, it was a conference in Newport Beach a couple of years ago. And if you think Nashville has McMansions, Newport Beach Garage will, will fit a whole Nashville McMansion in it, in, in, in some places. Just opulent, you know, beautiful, you know, seacoast vistas with, with massive homes and Maseratis and, and everything money can buy. And I remember, you know, we're driving in the rental car. I, I lean over to Patty. I said, yeah, it must be really hard to live this way. And she said, she said, yeah, it is. It is really hard to live this way. Because everyone you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle, Right? Like, oh yeah, I, I, I should have remembered. Several years ago, she and I both read a book by Madeline Levine, who works with teenagers in Newport Beach and similar areas as a psychiatrist. In her book, The Price of Privilege, she reminds us that teenagers in affluent communities 
are three times more at risk for anxiety, depression, and self-injury than the national average. Everyone you meet is dying. You come to Jesus, all that goes away, right? Nope, it doesn't. There's this character in Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, and the character is called Misfit. And Misfit, there's this quote from Misfit where, where he says, Jesus has thrown everything out of whack. Sometimes things get even more disruptive, not less, when Jesus enters the picture. You see here in verse 39, when Jesus speaks, as one of the commentaries says, to the storm like a parent would speak to a child. Be quiet, sit down. And, and the storm is quiet and sits down. And, 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 it, and it says in the literal original language, the, 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 the descriptor before calm is mega. The sea was mega calm. It was calm, calm. It was calm to the 20th power, calm. That's verse 39. And then verse 41, before the storm, they were afraid. After the storm is calmed, it says they're mega afraid. They're not feeling relieved. They are mega, they're even more afraid of what just happened in the calming of the storm than they were of the storm. What's that about? Jesus throws everything out of whack, you guys. Oh, he's good, but he's not safe. He's safe. He's not safe, but he's good. I remember talking to a friend some time ago, and I'm trying to persuade him to give his life to Christ. And he's giving me all these intellectual arguments. I'm like, you know what? I... Those arguments wouldn't stand up in any court of law. And finally, he said, I know. I know there's overwhelming eyewitness evidence that, that, that Jesus Christ was everything he said he was. I know there's overwhelming... Oh, is that Doug Powell? You've written stuff about this. There's overwhelming evidence of Jesus Christ having risen from the dead based on eyewitness testimony from people who are willing to die for that belief. 11 of the 12 disciples were willing to die for that belief. The 12th was Judas. This friend said, okay, you got me. I don't have any real arguments. Here's my problem with Christianity. I realize that if I give my, give my life to Christ, I will have to forgive my father. And I, I just can't have Jesus throwing things out of whack like that. Maybe for others it's, I just can't have Jesus throwing things out of whack in my relationship with money or with sex or with power. Or I can't have him throw my relationship with the truth out of whack because it could damage my career. It could cause me to lose friends and lose face. If I have a different relationship with the truth, or my relationship with the Bible. Jesus throwing that out of whack as well, where, where it's not me who edits 
his word anymore, but it becomes his word that edits me. It's not me that stands in judgment over what he has said, but it's what he has said that stands in judgment over me. It's not me that corrects what he said, but it, now what he said it corrects me. That's not safe either. Because no matter what generation, no matter what culture I live in, it means I have to be politically incorrect in every environment that I'm in. And that's scary costly sometimes. Fear of dying, fear of living. It's kind of a toss-up, isn't it? But then there's the fear that ends all fear, which is the fear of God. Jesus says to the weather, sit down and shut up. And it does. It obeys him. The disciples are filled with mega fear. They ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then what does Jesus do? In the following chapters, he gives them more assurance than he's already given them. He heals another demon-possessed and emotionally tortured man. He says, peace be still to what's going on in this man's inner life. And it's calm. It's mega calm. And the man says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Then he cures a hemophiliac from years of bleeding. He raises up Jairus' daughter. He feeds 5,000 men and their families on a handful of loaves of bread and a handful of fish. And then after they've all eaten and are full and satisfied, there are more leftovers than there was food at the beginning. I'll keep reassuring you that I am who I am. But he also gives them more storms. I'm giving you the authority, he says, to defeat demons. In other words, it's not going to be me that confronts the demons now. It's going to be you. You're all going to have your storms. You're all going to have your demons. And, and, and I'm asking you, I'm telling you, you now. Because you know who I am. And you know I'm with you always. At the very end of the age, you go face those demons knowing that I'm with you. And they go out and they cast out many demons in the power of Jesus and they heal many sick, sick people. And then for the rest of their lives, they're walking by faith more than they are walking by sight. They're not doing it perfectly, but they're walking by faith more than they are by sight so much and to the degree that they become so afraid, uh, so unafraid, that almost all of them die as martyrs. Eleven of the twelve were willing to. Judas was the only one who didn't die as a martyr for Christ. John was spared his life and died of natural causes in prison because of his faith. The other ten died persecuted for their faith in the resurrection of Christ. Remember, Mark is Peter's account of the life of Christ. Mark is, is a protege to Peter who would eventually be crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't regard himself as being worthy to be crucified in the same way that his master was. What happened? I think there was a turning point. Jesus says in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, one greater than Jonah is here. Who was Jonah? Jonah was another prophet. Almost an identical narrative. Storm at sea. Everybody in the boat's freaking out. Everybody's saying, we're perishing, wake up, do what you can, call on your God. And, and Jonah says, the only way to calm this storm is to throw me overboard. It's got to be my life in exchange for yours. They throw him overboard, you know, the fish swallows him up, and then everything is calm, mega calm. Same thing happens here with Jesus. The only way out 
of the storms that you have to face. The only way out of, of the ultimate storm of perishing is I've got to be thrown into that storm in order for peace and stillness to happen in the storm of death and perishing for you. Jonah was tossed over because of his rebellion against God and contempt toward his enemies. Jesus was willingly tossed in because of his obedience to God and his love for his enemies. His was the cry of a dying man. Why have you forsaken me? I'm perishing. Don't you care? And then he breathes his last. And the result of that act, now and forevermore, is that if we could only fear Jesus more than we fear the storm, we will never have to be afraid of anything, including him. Let's pray together. Lord, you have said that when we pass through the waters, you will be with us. When we walk through the fire, we will not be burned. You have said, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Give us courage, Lord, we pray. Because as the hymn we sung and as Horatio Spafford wrote long ago, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Let it not be lost on us that Spafford wrote those lyrics in response to losing his three daughters because of a storm at sea and a sinking ship. Father, you work the greatest miracles, not outside the boat, but inside of our hearts. Father, let us fear you so that we never have to be afraid of anything or anyone, including you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.